Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt, Specialist Digital Editor for the South China Morning Post, speaking to you from our studios here in Hong Kong at the end of what is known as Golden Week, the seven-day public holiday in mainland China following the National Day of the People's Republic of China on October the 1st. And what a week it's been, under sea, high in the air and inside the halls of the United Nations. We started on Monday with a report that the Japanese government had filed a formal complaint with Beijing over claims that China is extracting natural gas from a contested area of the East China Sea that Japan declares is in its exclusive economic zone. On Tuesday, we had the news that North Korea had fired a ballistic missile over the northern end of Japan's main island. And two days later, a group of US, South Korean and Japanese warships performed a missile defence exercise in the Sea of Japan which North Korea promptly set up two more ballistic missiles. All of this one week after China's President Xi Jinping and Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida both issued statements declaring it was important to take regional tensions in a positive direction. And we finish this week with news the US Defense Department has announced the world's number one maker of drones, DJI, has been blacklisted along with a dozen other Chinese companies for what it says are links to the Chinese military. But as I speak to you, it's news overnight from Geneva that has made global headlines and had Twitter a buzz. And that is that the 47 members of the United Nations Human Rights Council voted against a US motion for the council to debate the report released by the UN Commission for Human Rights on allegations of abuse and torture in Xinjiang. Now, in previous episodes, we've covered Beijing's vehement rejection of the report that recognised large-scale internments, credible reports of torture and widespread mistreatment and concluded crimes against humanity were possibly being committed. Beijing characterised the report as based on disinformation and lies and characterised it as wanton slander. Last night's rejection of a proposal to debate the report is being seen as a victory for China's back-channel diplomacy and its influence on UN committees. An interesting fact was that one of the abstentions from the vote was Ukraine, which I'm told may have something to do with a vote at the UN next week concerning Russia's annexation of Ukraine territory. And thus, I'll be taking you to our New York bureau, because that's not the only thing happening in and around the United Nations. Two American senators from very different ends of the political spectrum are teaming up for a push to admit Taiwan to a quite influential UN committee overseeing civil aviation. And that's happening in a week ending with a potential new escalation of US sanctions on any company supplying technology to China to help it make semiconductors. Let's get amongst it. Mark Magnier is our Deputy Bureau Chief for the SEMP North American Bureau. Mark, hello and welcome back. Hey, Jared. How you doing? Good, thank you. Now, let's turn to this news overnight. The United Nations General Assembly is over and the leaders have left town, but there's been a substantial win for China. 
overnight concerning the push to have the UN Commission for Human Rights report in the Xinjiang formally debated by the UN Human Rights Council. What's happened here? So this was out of Geneva. The Human Rights Council has 47 uh, members on it. And the US put through uh, a uh, motion for a, a formal debate of the Xinjiang report in uh, the next council meeting in the spring. You'll recall that um, Michelle Bachelet uh, put this report off until not only the last day, but just about the last hour of her time in, in, in the spot. And so there was no time to really debate it in that council. So the, the council has two year terms and they're up for the next one next spring. So the U.S. tried to do this, tried to uh, word this in as gentle a possible way as possible. Uh, knowing that the support would be a tough one. And basically, it was a big win for China. The council voted uh, 19 against debate next year to 17 in favor, including um, a number of Muslim countries who are you know, most concerned with the, the Uyghur uh, situation, including Pakistan, which you might expect given the strong alliance, Qatar, Indonesia, and um, then a number of supporters, uh, traditional supporters in, in Central Asia that are authoritarian states in Shanghai cooperative organization. So basically what you saw was that many are just kind of refusing to take sides in this growing standoff between China and the West. China said that the report infringed on its sovereignty and that it misrepresented its bid to re-educate Muslim terrorists. And the report itself, uh, probably well known, that Bachelet had tried to get to China for some time for or her human rights um, representative. And the report says that this amounted to serious human rights violations, possible crimes against humanity, and a pattern of torture. So the bigger picture I think we're seeing here is um, a concerted, um, very well thought out and sort of longer term strategy by China to build its position in the UN. And they've done this in uh, you know traditional ways uh, where they've used the South-South alliances uh, against the superpower U.S. But then also in a lot of uh, more subtle sort of interesting ways, including amassing staff on key committees uh, and key choke points. Witnesses will come to different parts of the UN, how NGOs can access different meeting rooms and this sort of thing. That's part of it. And then what delegates say that they've done terribly effectively is that they have basically blanketed meeting rooms with their people, just given the number of representatives they have. And this does a couple of things. It tells them well in advance when issues are gradually fomenting that are against their interests. And it also serves to, if you know that China is in the room, you're going to be much more careful about anything that is against their interests. You know, they've been doing this. They're, they're no longer, you know, afraid to push back on any of the issues that they often did involving human rights. They've sought to redefine things, characterize things as potential win-win solutions and put language in. They're very versed at putting language in that starts seemingly like win-win, starts very 
it appears to be, you know, everybody can agree on win-win, and then gradually work that in to redefine the issue oftentimes in ways that are in their interest. Of course, I had an extensive discussion with Professor Rosemary Foote just a couple of weeks ago about this engagement by China at the UN, the committee level, through the different arms of bureaucracy that make up the United Nations. And speaking of the UN, I see Republican Ted Cruz has teamed up with a a Democrat uh, senator to sponsor a new piece of legislation concerning to have a push to have Taiwan admitted to a particular United Nations organisation, this one concerning civilian airspace. This seems at odds with the reality that just 14 nations recognise Taiwan as a country and the US is not one of them, Mark. Can you tell us more about this? Yeah, this is this is sort of the, the very definition of strange bedfellows. Uh, it is a bill co-sponsored by Ted Cruz and Jeff Merkley from Oregon, Democrat, uh, quite quite liberal. Uh, it's probably safe to say these two have never joined forces on anything before. I would be surprised if they did. And the nature of it is. The two of them co-sponsored, which means that it wasn't like a whole mess of people where you just sign on, which meant they actually had to sit down and work together on this thing. And I think the bigger lesson here is just do not underestimate how strong bipartisan support is in Congress for Taiwan and, you know, by extension, uh, wariness of China these days. There are, I heard uh, recently, 800 bills have been before Congress this session that have that are involved with China. So the particular bill here was designed to explore uh, a strategy for Taiwan's inclusion in the International Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO. Um, and so this um, this is part of a strategy by the U.S. and others uh to ex- try to expand uh taiwan's uh, international space um also the world health organization the argument being that you know uh, whether in times of a pandemic whether in times of um the very vibrant air traffic that taiwan has um in and around uh the island that it should be a party to international discussions that deal with air safety and civilian control. And I can't help but notice the timing, Mark, that we are what, a week away, 10 days away from the 20th Party Congress in Beijing, an historic moment for China, an historic moment for Xi Jinping. And, of course, both he and his government have made reunifying with Taiwan, as it's described, a core goal. So it just seems like that's another way that the U.S. is trying to, if not oppose that, uh, at least challenge that. And it's going to be interesting to see what the United Nations thinks of a piece of U.S. legislation. But let me move on to something else involving airspace. This actually from Taiwan. It seems another day, another escalation or provocation across the Taiwan Strait. Yesterday, we read reports that Taiwan's Defense Minister, Chu Kuo-cheng, told a press conference that the Taipei government would now consider any incursion of PLA aircraft into its airspace as a first strike. In fact, he said, In the past, we said we won't be the first to strike, which meant we won't do it without them firing artillery shells or missiles, etc. first. But now the definition has obviously changed, as China used means like drones. 
So we have adjusted and will view any crossing of aircraft or vessels as a first strike. Mark, the temperature of the discussion has gone up just a little bit more, talking about declaring PLA aircraft as committing a first strike if they fly into the airspace. Has he clarified whether this is actual civilian airspace or this thing known as the Strategic Air Defence Identification Zone that stretches far into the Taiwan Strait and even into mainland China? He has not, that I have seen, he's not clarified that. This has not made a huge amount of kerfuffle in uh, Washington, which is at this point deep into midterm election run up and is, you know, uh, always self-absorbed at the best of times. Um, But uh, speaking to some people that look very closely at all of the uh, reams of Talmudic minutia that surrounds um, Taiwan, it, it seems that he is referring less to the ADIZ, Air Defense Identification Zone, than the 12 nautical mile territorial airspace, uh, the, the, the most, uh, you know, protected part of that. I don't know, but, um, you know, he, uh, the defense minister has to be under uh, some political pressure at this point. There have been 149 incursions into the ADIZ uh, between October 1st and the 4th, um, an absolute record. China has continued its its um, strategy of blanketing the area with uh, PLA jets that uh, exhaust the Taiwan Air Force trying to scramble to counter them. It, it looks like um, that is sort of what's happening, that the defense minister, I think, in some way, perhaps felt under pressure to respond to what is kind of a slightly embarrassing situation of uh, having all these birds fly around uh, in and around the island. And we can only assume there will be a heightened amount of air traffic uh, leading up again to this 20th Party Congress that's happening in Beijing very soon. Now, let's talk a bit more about this ongoing, you know, tech war, as it's been described by Washington upon Chinese companies. Yesterday, we had the formal blacklisting of the drone maker DJI by the US Defense Department for its links to the Chinese military. But you've been working on another story of tech restrictions about that much bigger story going on, and that is the the rush, the race, the desperate need for semiconductors. What can you tell us? Obviously, the uh, the big passage was the Chips and Science Act uh, that happened several weeks ago, and what this took two years to negotiate. It allocated fifty two billion dollars for uh, bolstering the U.S. chip sector. Of that, $39 billion goes to help uh, manufacturing of U.S.-based uh, manufacturing uh, of semiconductors or fabs, uh, and the rest will go to R&D. So the feeling has been that their attempts to tighten the restrictions to increase the quote-unquote choke points through which China has to go so that you're not uh, fueling a competitor who has stated quite openly that by 2049 it wants to dominate the global industry. And so what seems to be coming down, both from the uh, ever uh, energetic rumor mill in Washington, as well as a series of letters that 
the Commerce Department has sent out to various companies, uh, big tech uh, companies, warning them and interacting with them that we are going to have uh, perhaps as early as tomorrow a giant uh, package of measures uh, by some could be you know 100 pages of of changes on how to tighten up outbound technology inbound purchases um, the full range of, of doing this we also have a comment from uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan three weeks ago, basically signaling that there's been a sliding scale of efforts to sort of counter China's growing prowess in this key ingredient for the future of tech, all technologies, but that we need a much more absolute standard. So there were rumors that this would come out today and it seems to have been put off or perhaps was already always scheduled. But the word in Washington is that some of these measures in the last minute, the <laughs> lobbyists are putting up a massive fight in the last minute to try <laughs> battle it out. This is the swamp. This is Washington. So <laughs> that's the way things work. And um, at any rate, it, it could be very, very substantial. And China could react in uh, quite unhappy fashion if it feels that this is not just an incremental change, but something as fundamental as the ban on Huawei uh, that we saw in 2018. That's really interesting because, of course, we've reported in detail on the CHIPS Act uh, and then the, the CHIPS Alliance that the U.S. has tried to forge. And, of course, in the background, I'm just thinking back a, a month or two ago, speaking with Jacob Fromer, our colleague, about this Taiwan Act that's going to go uh, through Congress and get signed off on. There's a lot going on from the U.S. government about Taiwan this self-ruled island that it doesn't recognise as a country and how China's going to respond to this. Can I turn to you now and just sort of recap one of the stories you wrote just in the last week? Can I get you to recap some of the comments you reported from Henry Kissinger, the now 99-year-old veteran of US geopolitics who accompanied Richard Nixon on his historic visit to China some 50 years ago? He was in conversation at the Asia Society think tank in New York what did he have to say about Xi Jinping and this no limits relationship he has with Vladimir Putin and Russia? Well, it was the the optics of it were were I found kind of fascinating. Uh, so Henry is ninety nine years old. He's dressed in a in a sort of nice blue suit, but he you know he's ninety nine, and so he's kind of seated in this uh, comfortable chair on the stage. But his his uh, head is kind of almost buried in his chest he's you know he's and um and so he he's asked about xi jinping and it starts my expectations just sank down to the floor because he started in this in hugely theoretical way with the german accent and and saying that the u.s does not understand the essence of chinese thinking and then he gives this uh, his approximation of his un deep understanding of Chinese thinking, which was that history does not consist of solutions of specific problems, but that specific problems are part of a process that one has to master to conduct foreign policy. Okay, so my expectations are falling <laughs> further. Then he spends a bit of time going down memory lane about his time uh, with Nixon and 
uh, how Nixon probably chose him because he thought he could control him and uh, his meeting with Mao, Mao's style of speaking, how Mao rarely stated his view. I'm thinking, okay, we're going to get to Xi Jinping here. Finally, he starts to move around to Xi Jinping about how he met him early as a career, in his career as a vice president, and that she thought on balance that the cultural revolution was justified. That's kind of getting a little more interesting. And then he starts, uh, again, quite theoretical about how his view that Xi Jinping is very conscious of power and balance of power and speaks uh, seeks an international situation where win-win is based on balance of power. Okay, so we're still going on, uh, seem far off the track. And then he starts to turn to uh, the invasion of Ukraine and the early February meeting during the um, Olympics between Xi and Putin. And so my ears start to perk up. We're starting to get to the topic after what must have been 20, 25 minutes of a long meandering uh uh, treat us in uh, you know a very thick German accent. <laughs> it is every kissature, um, and so at that point he kind of basically says that she gave Putin a rather large blank check uh, in his mind, thinking that the invasion would succeed. And then from the standpoint of Henry Kissinger's premise that. She is really uh, a balance of power guy. His analysis was that she thought if Putin succeeded with his invasion, that would put China on the side of Russia against NATO, and that would help dent U.S. global influence. <clears throat> but now that things are going so bad <clears throat> with Russia's forces in Ukraine, there's even the prospect of Russian collapse that in his mind, she uh, she has two choices and he has to recalibrate one of those would be that it provides an opening to ease tensions a bit with the us perhaps as early as the g20 meeting in bali and the other would be to revert to nationalism he says on balance he thinks it would be the former but she is very much defined by his view that anything must be done through power and uh, that there's never discussions for their own sake. They must be backed up by ever stronger Chinese military power and that um, he could uh, push the nationalism card at home to secure his spot. That was, it was quite interesting. Mark, here in the office in Hong Kong, it's all about the upcoming 20th Party Congress in Beijing just a week or two away. Is there much discussion of that going on at places like the Asia Society? One of the panels that I that was there were asked what they would look for coming out of the uh, 20th Party Congress. So Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister of Australia, he said one of the things that he's going to look at most carefully is China has always talked about this being a period of strategic opportunity. But given all the problems out there right now, given um, uh, the property crisis at home and uh, the uh, economy and uh, unemployment and the COVID situation, et cetera, will they take out the wording strategic opportunity and just talk about adversity? Um, so deep in the weeds, but also kind of indicative of, uh, of U.S.-China relations and how China views the world. 
Then uh, Chris Johnson, who's uh, another um, fellow in this new institute that Asia Society has set up, said that the two things he will look out for whether is whether there will be a change in China's zero COVID policy and also a change in the wolf uh, warrior stance, given that these are two policies very closely aligned with Xi Jinping. Then a third uh, panelist, who's also a fellow, Ma Guolnan, uh, said he primarily looks at the economy, the Chinese economy, and he uh, said that the thing he will look for most, which, which seems uh, quite interesting and micro, is the advertisements in local newspapers uh, from local governments to see what signs of fiscal stress were facing in, in the Chinese economy. So those were some little insights that they had uh, above and beyond the usual verbiage uh, in and around the 20th Party Congress. Well, there is a lot going on, a lot of analysis to come on that 20th Party Congress. And it sounds like you've got a long night ahead of you following up this story to come about new restrictions on semiconductors and China's access to them. Mark Magnia, our Deputy Bureau Chief in the North American Bureau there in New York. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jared. Thank you for having me. That's all for you on this October 7th, the day that is, incidentally, Vladimir Putin's 74th birthday. It's also the birthday for Heinrich Himmler, Desmond Tutu and Tom York from Radiohead. Will somebody please call the Karma Police? Now, a reminder that pretty much everything you've heard Mark Magnia talk about is a developing story. So you're going to see the fruits of not just his reporting, but our entire tech team analysing the new blacklists on Chinese tech companies and the constraints on semiconductor manufacturing, all at our website, semp.com, over this weekend. As ever, you can follow our 24-hour newsroom on Twitter, at News. If you're looking for cartoons by Harry Harrison or pictures of wombats, you can follow me on Twitter at J underscore Watt. Stay safe, stay positive, test negative. Speak to you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.